Hello and welcome to the JP Morgan At Any Rate podcast. Uh, I'm James Nelligan from the, the G10FX strategy team in London. I've got uh, Arindam Sandilia here, co-head of uh, Global FX Strategy, who sits in Asia, and uh, Patrick Locke, who sits in uh, the US for the, for the G10FX strategy team. Uh, so let's get started. And uh, clearly, dollar, F, dollar strength uh, moved up a gear this week. Uh, you've had uh, risk parity portfolios drawing down, uh, China property market concerns intensifying, uh, oil prices breaking out further, US exceptionalism still uh, still very much intact. Uh, so it's a pretty potent cocktail for, for dollar outperformance. And uh, we broke some key levels in, in the likes of uh, euro, dollar and cable. Uh, next week, we get uh, payrolls, ISM and, and China PMI data, which all have the potential to, to push the narrative further. Uh, so Arindam, uh, just to turn it to you. So as we head into Q4 this year, um, how do you see the dollar set up in, in comparison to Q4 last year? Uh, where do you stand on on the dollar bullish spectrum here? And and what do you see as, as the key catalysts and drivers from here? Hey, James, uh, thanks for that. Yes, so as, as we've been writing in our research, we've been discussing on this podcast, uh, by and large, uh, as a research shop, we've been uh, leaning quite heavily onto the bullish dollar side of things for most of this year. And that pretty much remains the view as we head into Q4. Um, now, when we speak to investors about currencies, uh, you know, one, uh, uh, one thing that we very much note is the degree of anxiety around continuing to be long dollars. Uh, my own sense is part of it comes from uh, how much the dollar has already rallied since July, about 6% on the DXY. Uh, but I think a lot of it comes from uh, the long memory of last November's catastrophic sell-off, if you recall, once we got that uh, below consensus uh, US CPI print. Had some pretty large moves on the day. I think DXY fell like uh, 2.5%, dollar yen was down 4 5%. And that long memory seems to color people's uh, opinions on uh, how they should size the long dollar trade, how much, uh, how long they should let it run, etc. Um, so, you know, just thinking about where we stand today versus that period last year, now we can sort of point out uh, three or four key differences. The first is uh, last year, the dollar benefited a lot from the risk off in markets that uh, ensued after the uh, Ukraine invasion. Central banks went uh, hell for leather on rate hikes. Uh, there was a big spike in rate vol that ended up infecting almost every other asset class. And, and this sort of what we tend to call the left-hand side of the dollar smile or disruptive flight quality dollar strength was a big part of why the dollar did what it did last year. Now, in contrast, this time around, the story has been much more mundane, very garden variety, cyclical distinction between uh, better U.S. growth, higher U.S. rates versus worse rest of the world growth and lower rest of the world rates. So the dollar strength has been far more orderly and controlled. Uh, and the history of such controlled dollar rallies is that they tend to extend and not uh, collapse of their own weight. Uh, if you look at uh, the last 25, 30 years of currency trading, you now this sort of environment that we see today is typically followed by something like 4 to 5% additional DXY strength in the next six months or so. The second difference is that one of the key vulnerabilities of uh, uh, fourth quarter of last year, which is you know, 100 basis points plus of additional Fed hikes that were priced into the uh, dollar YS curve, that's entirely disappeared. And it's been replaced by uh, a material number of rate cuts that are priced. And obviously, we've seen uh, a significant depricing of those cuts in the last two months, but the fact remains 
uh, that if you cannot uh, invert the polarity of uh, Fed pricing in the same way that you did last year, uh, then the uh, kind of downside that the dollar stared at in 4Q22 is unlikely to repeat. Uh, the uh, third point is on oil. Uh, this is not something that, that uh, you or I are asset class experts on. Certainly the house view is that oil should not stick around these $1995 type levels, should head towards the mid-80s. But this remains a contingent risk for uh, risk markets on the whole and for the dollar as well. And I don't, don't think it's incorrect for the dollar to price in some amount of risk premium for us seeing uh, even $100 or $100 plus oil even though that may be somewhat short-lived. And finally, I think the biggest difference in the dollar's outlook for 4Q23 versus 22 is that from a valuations and positioning standpoint, I think things are a lot cleaner, a lot more benignly priced today. You don't see overshoots on most of our uh, short-term fair value models for the dollar, be they against growth differentials, be they against real rate differentials. Um, and uh, positioning is significantly clean. Um, so on the CFTC data that we track, uh, you know, it doesn't look like the market is overly long dollars at all. Uh, in the EM client survey that we conduct monthly, uh, people are net a little bit long of EMFX, which is of course an artifact of uh, how far the uh, EM carry trade has run this year. Uh, so net net, people are not defensively positioned and that reduces the odds of uh, uh, you're getting a big uh, dollar rinse in the way we got last year. And then one final point I'll make on the broader risk backdrop. Now, last year, the risk off happened in the lead up to 4Q22. So far this year, we haven't seen a risk off. Uh, if risk markets do really buckle under this sort of um, uh, spikes in long-end uh, US yields that we've seen of late, then that kind of dollar strength, the risk of dollar strength of 22 is still in the pipeline potentially. And then we have two other currencies, yen and CNY, where central banks have uh, put paid to all hopes of uh, dollar strength through actual or implied intervention. And that remains another contingent risk for, for the dollar is if those stances were to be challenged going forward and those dollar pairs were to start to move higher. then I think the rest of the dollar index will itself uh, gain uh, a fair bit of momentum. Thanks, Arindam. Yeah, I very much agreed from my side. I think uh, I think this has uh, plenty more legs in it. Um, Patrick, turning to you, uh, relatedly, how, how are the more bottoms-up US developments fitting into to all this? Uh, there's obviously a, a range of factors in the discussion, from uh, the government shutdown to student loans and auto strikes. How does this uh, factor into positioning around the dollar and US exceptionalism itself? And on that note, could you also tell us about your uh, your new positioning publication that went out this week? Yeah, sure. Thanks, James. Yeah, so, you know, a few risks on the U.S. side starting to percolate. Um, you mentioned a few of them. I think the, the, the view from our economics team is that no single one individually, you know, will break the back of the expansion. That being said, if you take all of them and kind of aggregate them, um, you know, maybe there's some downside risk to the outlook. I looking across them, I see reasons, you know, for optimism um, when thinking, you know, through to the dollar. Um, the biggest, probably the biggest in terms of cyclical impact is probably the student loans. Uh, but even there, I think, you know, developments on the ground are encouraging. I mean, obviously you want to think about the marginal propensity to consume. Um, we don't think it's necessarily one for one, you know, increased repayments, drawdown on consumption. So, uh, it's not like a blunt hit to GDP necessarily. 
And also I take, you know, some solace in the fact that uh, the, the prepayments uh, basically over the course of August into September uh, before the start of interest rates kicking back in has been very large. Um, and I don't think people would tend to do that if they weren't, you know, feeling relatively comfortable with their, uh, you know, personal financial position. So altogether, I don't think that one's like, you know, particularly problematic right now. So that kind of leaves us, you know, with the with the strikes and with the shutdown, and obviously the shutdowns front of mind. Uh, we're staring down the barrel of a shutdown at midnight uh, tomorrow. It certainly looks like that's going to be the case. I think generally markets have accepted that as the outcome, uh, which means the attention is really kind of turned to how long does it last, and and what exactly are the kind of you know collateral damage spillover effects. Um, above and beyond just, you know, the simple macro hit. And we maintain that if it's a short shutdown, the macro, the direct macro impact is relatively small. We, our economists have previously estimated, you know, a, a weekly impact of one-tenth to two-tenths of GDP annualized that also kind of bounces back after the government reopens. So that in and of itself is kind of the primary concern. But you'll notice that with the kind of the increasing likelihood of a shutdown, the odds or the, the length, the perceived length of the shutdown has also seemed to have risen. That, that's certainly the tone from our discussions uh, anecdotally, um, but also there's some political markets. Uh, you know, the volume traded isn't necessarily massive, but nevertheless, it does kind of give you some barometer of kind of the way the wind is blowing. And right now, uh, markets that we've observed suggest that the expected shutdown is now ticking up to about 13 days. Um, so starting to kind of increase towards that longer end, um, obviously, the longest we've had is 35 days uh, five years ago. So markets starting to think about that. And in particular, you know, the unique wrinkle, I think, this time is that relative to 2018-19, when Congress did manage to pass a few appropriations bills, um, that ultimately allowed the Bureau of Labor Statistics to be funded, which meant that non-farm payrolls and CPI prints were actually uh, you know, allowed to go ahead. There's a case to be made that this time, if the, sh if the shutdown is not resolved quickly, that um, BLS is actually going to be impaired in the data that they release, which means uh, as early as next week, we might actually miss the payrolls print. Um, and then CPI obviously prints not long after that. So that's obviously pretty important given um, A, you know, Fed data dependency, and B, as you alluded to, this idea of U.S. exceptionalism. Um, which is predicated, you know, primarily on strong, strong data and labor market data in particular is an, an important crux of that. And then the longer this lasts, again, coming back to the duration of the shutdown, if this goes two or three weeks, then you start to think, you know, is the Fed, you know, not going to have all of its data sources before it meets uh, at the FOMC meeting, which bridges October 31st and November 1st. So in that kind of context, I think from the dollar side, given the momentum we've had, given the short-term buildup in positioning, I agree with Arindam that the stock of dollar longs is not particularly large. But, you know, again, looking at the futures data that we have, there has been a pretty uh, material unwind of short positions uh, on a kind of one to two month basis. So, um, you know, there's definitely kind of a momentum flow there uh, that's been built up. So, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility to me to see that, um, you know, People might just want to pare back their risk exposure a little bit. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, alluding to Rindam's question again about, you know, um, people thinking about, um, you know, question marks around the dollar, I think this isn't particularly helpful. At the end of the day, U.S. exceptionalism does also kind of, you know, it's a partial result of the fact that the rest of the world uh, is 
moving in a direction that is dollar positive. And so that obviously can continue. Uh, but, you know, we might be just kind of a little bit more uh, flattish on the, on the dollar narrative story um, in the next one to two weeks. And we'll just kind of see how the shutdown evolves from here. And then to your question on positioning, yes. Um, we this week introduced a new kind of aggregated positioning metric um, based on options data, uh, specifically DTCC trade level transactions. Um, I think it's a really interesting data set um, in part because it is at the trade level. So you can kind of, you know, splice the data by parameters, things like, uh, you know, dollar yen strikes transacted over the last two weeks. That's obviously very, very useful around certain event risks, be it, you know, um, like YCC, YCC adjustment, for example, uh, prepositioning for the BOJ. And obviously this applies across a wide range of transacted pairs. We, we looked at about 25 liquid currency, liquid currency pairs, which is generally much better than, um, you know, what you can get from kind of the futures position data. On the whole, I think it provides a lot of interesting and new insights and um, is very complimentary, especially given the fact that there's a lot of, I personally have a lot of questions around uh, futures data, um, not always being the most representative of, you know, broader market positioning. For example, um, you know, dollar position can spike uh, in the futures data in the back half of last year, um, when I think obviously uh, most people had that position on. Um, and so we worked through a number of different um, scenarios and use cases in the publication. Um, you know, we hope to, to publish on it more frequently. Um, it's a complimentary uh, kind of addition to our existing position coverage. At the end of the day, I think it's, um, you know, it's, a, it's a new angle um, and I think it provides a lot of interesting um, and useful color on top of what we already have. And so in that respect, um, you know, I hope everyone takes a look um, and it should provide, I think, some interesting color going forward. Um, but James, maybe I'll turn it back to you. Um, you know, you're covering uh, the Euro space right now. Um, where is your conviction at? And, um, you know, how are you thinking about the European area, uh, given the broader global macro developments we've had of late? Thanks, Patrick. Yeah. So in terms of highest conviction in the European FX space, that the view continues to be to be bearish sterling as as the highest conviction. Um, fair value for for cable has moved down to around 120. And uh, we published a more detailed piece last week uh, before the BOE meeting, just going through through our thinking on how sterling should be reacting to to the labor market loosening in the UK, how rate spreads are evolving. Uh, the lead indicators for growth that we look at, uh, how the BOE discussion has shifted, and and the big picture view on UK relative productivity. But this week, there's there's a few uh, interesting tidbits to highlight that I think push the view a bit further. Uh, so we saw the business confidence survey fall overnight in the UK. That I think that's that's overlooked, and it's actually quite important because there's currently a very rare and large divergence between the PMIs and business confidence. So if that starts to resolve itself, which it looks like it might be starting to do, then uh, we'll be closer to economists across the street making further downgrades to growth, I think, because it, it resolves some of the issues, some of the divergences in, in, in the data. And elsewhere on Wednesday, you had the ONS publish uh, their statistics on the number of businesses registered to pay tax, and it it saw it falling on the year for the first time since since 2011. 
uh, which is a pretty interesting statistic. So business insolvency is clearly been on on the rise, and that there's obviously some impact there from the policy tightening over over the course of the cycle. But if you just stand back and think that contrasting that statistic with with the market narrative around quote UK resiliency, UK growth resiliency, that was really driving the discussion even even as recently as as august um and it's just it's just uh quite stunning how that how the conversations flipped so quickly um and in terms of how the broader macro feeds in um i'd say we're, we're more bearish on sterling versus the dollar than than the euro um as we, we can see rates markets starting to to reassess what the structural level of medium term rates could be uh with discussions around um r star and, and term premium so uh, those are concepts that markets don't really have a firm level on. They struggle to to attach a firm level of yields to. So we want to focus our, our bearish sterling view versus the dollar as as we think that's that's more robust towards any kind of further DM fixed income sell-off, um, especially given that the, the risk parity drawdowns that we, we mentioned here before. Um, with, and obviously that we've done some work showing that the dollar screens are around 2% cheap still to how uh, risk parity is, is performing. Uh, next week, we get a broadbent speaking on, on a monetary policy panel at the ECB. And it'll be interesting to see how his views are changing on the labor market potentially and, and the debate around the pause in, in rates. Um, our bias is, is that We've reached an inflection point now where, where the tightening thus far has, has kind of broken the back of the labor market in the UK. And you, you really can't say the same for the US and Europe. Uh, so from a rate spread perspective, uh, that, that should favor um, sterling downside still. Uh, OK, that draws things to a close here. Thanks, uh, Arindam and, and Patrick, for, for joining me this week. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on September 29th, 2023.